This is just such a beautiful story. So just enter into the story and just see what God wants to do in your life through it. The ruckus can be heard a block away, interrupting the yawn of the city just waking up. And into the midst of the crowd that gathers every morning to hear Jesus teach when he's in Jerusalem, she is drug and then thrown. Barefoot and disheveled, sweaty with the struggle, a mop of dark hair covers her face as she hangs her head. They pushed her and dragged her and her forbidden secret. Adulteress, they charge, caught in the act. But caught by whom and why? The teachers and the Pharisees appeal to the law and call for the death penalty. But for a person to be put to death, the law required at least two eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses to the very act of adultery. How could they do that? Can you picture the scene? Peeping Pharisees nosing around her windowsill. How long did they watch? How much did they see? Were their own hearts filled with adultery as they eavesdropped on the clandestine rendezvous? At least two witnessed this act. They had to see the same things at the same time so that their testimonies would corroborate. They had to be identically the same. Very few people were stoned in Israel for adultery for this reason. And that's good. Such evidence virtually requires for the witnesses to set up. This also creates a problem. The law also taught that if a person saw someone just about to sin, they were required by compassion to speak up and stop them. So these people that were waiting at the window did not do their own moral duty in stopping the act before it began. These witnesses neglected their moral obligation to this woman. But they saw her not as a person, but as a pawn, an object to be used to suit their malicious purposes. Her fate and her life were incidental. How did they know where to peep? How did they know where to go that morning? You see, there was more planned for that morning's drama than the clandestine rendezvous. They had been trying to catch Jesus in an indiscretion for months. They scrutinized his every move. They took notes of everything he said that they might use against him. And finally, they came up with a trap, a dilemma that would be a lose-lose for Jesus. And when they had seen enough, these guardians of morality stormed the door of the room where she lay naked and defenseless. She struggled as they wrestled to subdue her. Do her. She reached for her clothes, trying to put them on, but they had to let go and... 
It was just difficult. Finally, the clothes were on, and they picked her up like a pig to be taken to market, kicking and squealing. Thus, she arrives at the temple courtyard, torn from the privacy of a stolen embrace and thrust into public shame. They throw her at Jesus' feet, and then they force her to stand up so everyone can see and hear. With a hypocritical show of respect, they ask Jesus the very carefully constructed question. Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? She stands in frozen exposure, heart racing, hoping that her hair will cover the sinkhole of her shame. She sees movement, and the courtyard is suddenly rimmed with men in fine robes, holding large stones in their hands. Where did they all come from? And how did they know? And how did they come so quickly? And where is her lover? Why had they not drug him to this court? Deuteronomy 22.22 teaches that both the man and the woman are to be stoned. He was caught in the act, too. And then she wondered, was he, by some prior agreement, allowed to slip out a window? And were all the attentions that he had paid to her over the, the preceding weeks and even months, were they all part of a scheme, part of a plot? Was it all just show? so she could be drug here? Why? Why? It was not the woman that they wanted to bring down, nor the law that they wanted to hold up. It is Jesus they want. She is just bait. Their question is the spring to the trap. If Jesus tells them to grant her mercy, he will be undermining the law of Moses. And if he tells them to go ahead and stone her, he'll be usurping the authority of Rome. Both rulings would get him into trouble. They waited gleefully with bated breath, clutching their stones, ready for his answer, regardless of which way he would rule. Time and time again, Jesus had shown compassion to sinners. And yet the law of Moses is uncompromising and impartial in its treatment of them. If they can somehow wedge this loyalty of Jesus to the law with his steadfast love for sinners, certainly they could squeeze out his true colors for all to see. If he frees her, they assume as they assume he most certainly will, he forsakes the law. Then they will have a cause to accuse him before the Sanhedrin, which is why the Sanhedrin was already present around the edges of the room. Their question is not a theoretical one. 
like whose wife will she be in the resurrection? It is a question of life and death for this woman. And not only her life and death, but the life of Christ on how he will answer. So as they waited anxiously, they were disappointed because Jesus doesn't answer. And one thing I notice as I read the Gospels is how many times Jesus just stays quiet. He is so smart. So many times he does not say any more than necessary and often nothing at all. And he simply stoops down to gather his thoughts. The silence is deafening. The drama is intense. With his finger, he writes in the sand. And the necks of the righteous crane to decipher what he is writing. What he wrote will forever remain a mystery. The Bible does not tell us. Maybe it was a quote from Moses about showing mercy. Maybe a quote from the prophets about plotting evil. Maybe the names of the women with whom they had slept in their earlier years. The Greek word that's used here means not to simply write, but to write against. The kata is against, which would indicate that he was writing their sins in some form in the dust. Whatever he writes, it's for their eyes and not ours. But whatever it is, it doesn't register because they still press him, persisting, wanting that judgment. Jesus stands up. All eyes are fixed upon him, and even though the room is crowded, it's silent. The silence again is deafening. At last he responds, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stoops back down and continues to ride in the sand. All who stand there are guilty, especially those that have set up this woman. Some are guilty of adultery themselves. Some are guilty of partiality and false witness. It's as if Jesus is saying, you want to get serious about the law of Moses? I can do that. You're all guilty. But whatever Jesus is doing at this moment, he is unflappable, serene, and fearless, even when surrounded by his enemies. Notice what he does. First of all, he honors the law. Yes, she should be stoned. But then he upholds mercy. Only the ones who have not sinned can do this. What is Jesus saying about judgment? You want to condemn her? You're guilty yourselves. The only one who has the right to condemn her is the one without sin. And the one without sin chooses not to condemn. 
The words are disarming, literally. One by one, the heavy stones in their hands hit the pavement with thuds. One by one, the men slink out of the courtyard, starting with the oldest. Now, that's a really unusual thing to, for the Bible to, to put there, that the oldest men left first. Was it because they were the wisest and recognized their sin first? Or was it because they were the most guilty and had more written in the sand against them? After all, if the witness was false and not legally valid, the oldest men would have the major share of the responsibilities. They were the leaders of the group. Seeing their own sins written in the sand changed their minds about pressing charges. And I think it would do the same for us if we saw our sins written in the sand. And finally, Jesus is alone with the woman, lawbreaker and lawgiver, and the only one qualified to condemn this woman doesn't. She takes a deep breath, her heart fluttering. He stands up again, this time to free her. Has no one condemned you? He gently asks. Timid words stumble from her lips. No one, Lord. She waits for a reply, thinking he's got to be composing a sermon in there. But no sermon comes. What comes instead are words of mercy. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Her past life of sin does not need to shape her future. And I want to tell that is true for each one of us. No matter what it is that you struggle with this morning, it does not need to shape your future because mercy triumphs. The trembling subsides. She tucks her hair behind her ears so that her face can catch the morning sunshine. The deep furrows of fear on her forehead relax. Ellen White says she falls at Jesus' feet to confess every other sin and to express her gratitude. With the word sobbing, Ellen White describes what she was like before Jesus that morning. She looks up into his face. It's been an ordeal for him, too. He takes a deep breath and then smiles again silently. Go, you're free now. She opens her mouth to say something, but the words can't come. She pulls herself up and walks away. And then she stops and turns around to thank him again. But Jesus is seated, his face buried in his hands, as he talks with his father. So she turns to go her way and leaves behind her life of sin and shame. There are no tears that morning after, as she leaves. There is only joy. But years later, there will be tears. 
at odd moments during the day, when she sees her children asleep in their beds, or when she waves goodbye to her husband as he walks to work in the morning. That marriage that she would have never had, those children she would have never known, a life she could have never lived were it not for the Lord who stood up for her when others wanted to stone her, who stooped to pick her up and send her on her way, forgiven. This account of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery shows us Jesus at his wisest, his humblest, and his godliest. He is amazing. This is pure genius and sheer grace at work. This is mercy triumphing over justice and judgment. And when they had this incredibly poignant conversation in the temple courtyard, everyone else had left. So how did this story find its way into the gospel? I can imagine that this story was the testimony that this woman gave as she worshiped with the newly formed church in Jerusalem. As she reiterated Jesus' words of mercy, she gave us words to receive for ourselves when we have fallen and failed, and gives us words when we feel exposed and condemned by the humans around us. We need to take those words and cling to them, to use them as a promise of who our Savior is. Don't you just love him? But they're also words to speak to others, words of mercy for people who deserve judgment. Jesus wants our speech to make souls stronger. He wants us to be purveyors of hope, not shame. Carefully notice the order of these potent phrases. One, neither do I condemn you. Two, go and sin no more. Make sure in your life that you never get them out of order. Don't get them out of order. For years in the church, I thought that if I could not sin anymore, God would not condemn me. But this is backwards. The problem is good behavior without being inspired by Christ's love and forgiveness is in extremely short supply. It's only the love of Jesus that can help us sin no more. It's only loving him more than our sin that can help break those deep patterns of habit in our lives. And I think about the promise in Romans 8, 1 and 2, where it says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? No condemnation. Does it say there's no condemnation for those who have arrived at perfection? 
No, for those who are in Christ Jesus, those that are holding on tight to who Jesus is, there is no condemnation. And that is amazingly good news, wonderful news. So, I have a curious twist to this story. Jesus was as merciful to the scribes and Pharisees that surrounded him that morning as he was to that woman. He read their thoughts, which were plots of a jealousy-based murder. He had every right to call them out. And if it had been me, I would have. I would have pointed my finger and I would have said, you did this and you're doing that. And and I would one by one have gone around that circle and just let them all have it. The sins that he wrote in the sand could have been yelled. He could have exposed their despicable hearts one attitude at a time. But he didn't. And that is really good news, too. Because sometimes it's not adultery that we're caught in. It's judgment and hypocrisy. And he loves us, and he's gentle with us, even when that's the problem in our heart. Amazing story, isn't it? The woman doesn't have a name. You know, the only way we can refer to her is the woman caught in adultery. Maybe her name is missing so that we would think of her as a common sinner caught up in a system of judgment with no escape. She is the person we judge and the person we are all rolled into one the woman caught. The woman is like us, like all of us. She's defined by her sin. Think about it. The only name we have for her is her sin. Who is she? The woman caught in adultery. So what title would you carry? The woman caught in gossip. The man caught in covetousness and materialism, the teen caught in dishonesty. What title would you bear if it were not for grace? Forget for a moment the self-righteousness of the accusers and the apparent injustice of the adulterous man's absence. Do you really hear what Jesus said? He doesn't say, it's okay, dear. Adultery doesn't matter. Everybody does it. This woman's guilt was real. She had committed the crime of adultery, and it matters to God. God, through Moses, commanded a really steep, stiff punishment. But God the Son simply said, neither do I condemn you. Now, if God violates his own commandment and lets the guilty go unpunished, then God is unjust. So how could he possibly say 
those words to this woman. And this is where the story really gets good. God fully intended for this sin to be punished to the full extent of the law. But she would not bear her own punishment. She would go free. This young teacher would be punished in her place. Might he have written these words from the book of Isaiah in the dirt? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought our peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Or maybe this one, this in the same chapter, we all like sheep have gone astray. How many does this refer to that have gone astray? We all like sheep have gone astray, every single one of us. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Oh, man. Every one of us, in a sense, is this woman. Our horrible sins, our shameful lust, our destructive tongues, our murderous hatred, our corrupting greed, our covetous pride, stand exposed as starkly as she was exposed that day in the temple courtyard. Our condemnation is deserved. And yet, Christian, Jesus speaks these stunning words to you. Neither do I condemn you. Why? Because he has taken the condemnation in your place. All your guilt has been removed. No stone of God's righteous judgment will crush you because Jesus was crushed for your iniquities. Jesus was the only one in the crowd that day who could in perfect righteousness require the woman's death. And he was the only one who could in perfect righteousness pardon her. Mercy triumphed over judgment for her at great cost to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And mercy triumphs over judgment for us only at a great cost, the cost of Christ's life. And if you read the chapter 8 of the book of John, the chapter begins with them wanting to stone this woman. When the chapter is finished, they're wanting to stone Jesus. He has taken the guilt and stood firm. He chose it. He chose to take our sins upon him. So that last verse in chapter 8, at this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, not quite ready, slipping away from the temple, temple grounds. So, my friends, neither do I condemn you, no matter what you're doing. Go and sin no more. <laughs>